0: Hello, my friends. When hiring people, you don't ever want to shop hungry. When you shop hungry, you end up getting junk food. Now, this was a leader bit challenge completed by a leader this week, and that reminded them to step back and analyze what people they need on their team based on their current team strengths and needs. After completing this challenge with a fresh set of eyes, they were able to identify their newest team member with clarity and confidence. When you teach your people to do what great leaders do, you'll end up with teams stacked with humble, outcome-driven leaders. Level up your leaders with LeaderBits, an action-based leadership development program where you take action on the advice from the greatest leaders in the world. Visit leaderbits.io and click Discover to get a demo today. Now. Get excited because today we are talking to Rob Zuber, the CTO at CircleCI. And we discuss how to leverage peer groups as you experience different stages of growth, solving the challenges of a distributed organization, and how to amplify your culture by aligning praise with company values. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Oh, I'm already in love with you. You got a guitar on the wall.
1: Yeah, this is a uh, we, we joke. Oh, you can see like a little bit of cable down there, but nothing else. Like everyone in Circle CI, I think, has like oriented their camera mm-hmm. in a way that they feel best represents what, who they want to be.
0: Yes. You know what I mean? Like, if, if is this side we, the good side? Yeah.
1: If, yeah, you can see my desk right now. You'd be appalled if you could see the rest. There are actually other guitars, but other than that, it's, it's a hot mess in this room um Ooh. and so it's very specifically like this is the part that i want
0: this is the this is the cleanest part right it's like it looks nice and clean and beautiful and it's
1: a it's a constant reminder of something i should be doing but i'm never doing right instead i'm sitting here talking to other people uh no, that's not about you i'm to say like my no. day is like 8 a.m to midnight every day and then you know at least i remember that i have a guitar if i see it in my own little image right here
0: I was just struggling with this recently, actually. So I have, do you have kids? I do, yeah. How How old? 10 and 12. Okay, boys, girls?
1: Uh, two boys.
0: Two boys? Mm-hmm. So I have a three month old boy and a two year old girl. Okay. And and she's like, da- she's like loves music. So we got a lot of music in the family and I haven't been playing much either. You know, is running a business and everything <laughs> yep. and then and then I was laying in bed about two or three nights ago and I said the justification for me spending an hour every two or three days playing guitar is that I can that my kids will see me doing this and then they'll pick up on it and learn and be able to talk about it and before I was doing it for me because it was something so, like I enjoyed so I'd put it off because I was like I need to work harder I need to focus more on the business and scaling and growing yeah but now I have an excuse. <laughs> I have a reason. I need to do this so that they see me doing this.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. My my kids actually both play piano. Uh, oh, amazing! And, and they're quite good. Uh, nice. But it is fun to play together. I think they enjoy that. Like the the part where it's just practice for the sake of learning an instrument doesn't excite them. But yeah. when we do things like, hey, like one of you grab the. We have a cajon. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's like, oh, little, I know what a cajon yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. It's the cheapest percussion you can get in your house. And uh, other than um, one oh, of the claves, which we also have. Um, but, uh, you know, one of you do that. One of you will play some chords on the piano and like I'll play some guitar or whatever. Like that's the thing that gets them excited is just like we're hanging out together and we're doing anything. Right. Nice. Um, which is awesome and easy to forget. Uh, my kids actually left, yes, no, Tuesday. Tuesday for eight Where'd weeks of summer. Uh so I'm Whoa. I'm from Yeah, I know, right? Um they went to Toronto. My, I'm from Toronto originally and my parents are there and so they go and okay. they go to like overnight camp and so so now I can play some guitar for myself. The stuff yes. that they don't want to hear.
0: <laughs> All right. So what are you gonna bust out? You're gonna bust out like some John Mayer, BB King, or it's like what what style yeah. do you like to play?
1: Definitely more blues oriented. I, I was having a funny conversation though with someone who works for me the other day about uh really fast downstrokes uh, (laughs) specifically in reference to to James Hetfield. Um, And so like I have a ton of musical influences but I've never been really fast, right? I've never been like the shredding kind of like, uh, yeah, yeah, either that or just like playing two-handed tapping up and down the fretboard, it's not really my thing. Um,
0: But it's so popular on YouTube, Rob.
1: It is, yeah, exactly, and I know there are eight-year-olds who can do it way better than I ever will, so I'm just gonna leave that whole territory and be like, yeah, I want the soulful note, right? Like, B.B. King, you reference like, that guy can play, like, yeah. three notes, and you're like, oh, my God, that's the best thing I've ever heard. Uh, so I'll, I'll strive for that.
0: Yeah, it's the space between the notes that's beautiful. Exactly,
1: right? yeah, it, it is the space, right? It's, like, stopping to take a breath and expressing a small, like, thing and then letting that sink in with people And certainly something I try to think about in public speaking, I wouldn't say that I've learned to be a better public speaker because of guitar playing, but they're related, right? Uh, I would listen
0: to that conference talk.
1: About how guitar playing makes you a better public speaker. All right, I'll submit it. I don't know who's going to take it, but I'll give it a shot.
0: People will take it. That's it. That's original. They'll like it. Fair enough. It's worth a try. It's worth a try. Cool. Well, like great,
1: great to meet you. And We're
0: best friends now, Rob.
1: Excited <laughs> to talk about something completely uh, random, but still. Uh, I, I will say, actually, going back to the point of um, you know, working in a very distributed team, um, in one sense, it feels a little invasive. In the other sense, it's really nice to have a, a connection with people. As soon as you sort of first meet them, they start working with you. The number of guitars honestly in Circle CI in people's rooms is is bonkers. And if it's not a guitar, it's a bass or a drum kit or whatever. And so there's or, or all. Actually, there are many people who have everything. And you just,
0: I, I have everything, yeah.
1: Yeah, awesome. Like, how do you have time to do all that? I don't know, but that's amazing. Like it's so cool to me that people do all these different things. Um, and uh and it gives a connection point, right? Right away, yeah. you're like, "Oh, oh, tell me about that book that you're read that's behind your bookshelf," or you know, "Tell me about your guitar." What you know, it's just it's cool. I
0: like yeah, it. I definitely don't have time. I just like the way it looks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and right? something for your kids no. to do, right? Like to to have exposure to all those things and learn. And uh, um, I was having a. a we'll try a little software development in here somewhere, but I was having, um, at at dinner last night with some, some people who were over about um, trying to get kids into software development. And, you know, people always ask me about that. My kid's like seven and I, should they learn Python or C++? I'm like, like, I don't know. Go outside and like take something apart in your garage. Like just, become interested in random things and find what sparks you know creativity and excitement and then someday you'll build on that right um i'm a big fan of baking with my kids but we like Mm christmas time we'll make a gingerbread house and they're like we want to buy this gingerbread house kit." i'm like no we don't we want to go home and we're going to make like templates and we're going to use uh geometry to figure out the dimensions and then we're going to bake like we're going to look up a recipe we're going to bake stuff and then there's like resilience, which is a big thing in engineering, right? Because we put the roof on, but it cracks in the middle. And like, how do we deal with that? We get a little more icing and m and and kind of hold it together. Like, and then you realize I can make things, right? And I can, I have, you know, the ability to do things and create things that I want. And someday when I'm like, oh, maybe I would want to do that in software, cool. Be excited about that and you'll learn Python. That's not the hard part, like the syntax, that's not it. It's realizing that I can make things and I can break things and I can fix things and like just being excited about that. Um, That to me is what matters. Plus you're seven. Like who doesn't want a gingerbread house?
0: (laughs) Right? Right? I want a gingerbread house and I'm 30. Exactly. Exactly. And and who cares
1: about Christmas? Like even if you don't celebrate it or even if it's June or July, we just make one. They're
0: delicious. Who doesn't love cinnamon? Right. Like, come on. Well, maybe
1: after it's been on display for like a year, maybe don't eat it, but yeah.
0: Well, okay. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) But there's your next talk. You could do rebuilding legacy systems in relation to fixing gingerbread houses. Do you you tear the whole house down or do you just isolate the roof and fix that? Mm. Do you rebuild the whole roof or do you just put some tasty glue on the crack? Well, these are big questions
1: you know what then they're very relevant to uh, real houses also i mean it's not that much <laughs> of a metaphor there's there's a house down the block from me that has been on um you know those stacked like four by fours or whatever or i guess they're maybe yeah or whatever like just the whole house the whole bottom is missing it's been sitting there for a year up on these things which just scares me i'm glad i'm not their next door neighbor i mean i, I live about a mile from a fault line like this is not a good place to have your right. whole house floating in the air on top of piles of wood. Um, but every time I look at it, I think, like, given the amount that they've taken away, why didn't they just build a new house? Like, what is that little part that they're keeping? Why do they have that? You know, at what point do you just tear the whole thing down and start over, um, which is also metaphorically applicable to so much software?
0: Right, you should ask them. And then you should profile them and like what type of software person they would be. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. But I don't even know. I hope they don't live there because it's really, it's scary. I mean, it's, it's very scary. Anyway.
0: You guys, next time you're going through, just like send a picture and tweet it and I'll follow you because I'm interested to see this house on blocks. Okay. Right. I will, uh,
1: I'll take a photo and post it. Sounds
0: good. All right, we're ga- we're going to take it back since we're talking about kids and all that good stuff was music the first time you fell in love with technology or did something else get you interested? Like what was your first, first, uh, use of technology?
1: Um, that's a great question. So depends on technology, I guess. And so I, you know, speaking of taking things apart, the the guitar that's over on this side, I took apart in high school and repainted, uh, and then tried to rewire it and basically ruined it. Um, and I only recently had a luthier here in in Oakland fix it all for me so I could play it again. And that was really cool to play the guitar that I played in high school, you know, my high school bands and stuff like that. Um, so I always had an affinity for, um, that kind I mean, this is probably why I think about it in this way. I didn't start with software per se. Uh, I mean, times were also different. This is, we're talking like late eighties, early nineties kind of thing. Um, and, uh, I, I loved doing things with my hands, everything from doing, you know, construction with my dad in, in his house, um, to, and then I I ended up getting my first job working in a plumbing and electrical department of a hardware nice. store. And so, you know, just much more sort of macro hands-on types of things. Um, and then I, I studied engineering, um, engineering physics, which is not super hands-on. It's very like, you can't see it. It's quantum and math and all this kind of stuff. Um, but when I left school, I started working in a factory, effectively. It was like um, we we're manufacturing circuit boards for oh, cool. large organizations, uh, many that you've heard of, um, but quickly learned. like My job was basically process improvement. And so analytics uh, on top of the process. And we were you know, doing a bunch of stuff with spreadsheets, and it was very manual. Um, and I started doing some work to automate that. And I realized I enjoyed building the software more than I enjoyed thinking about the process and fixing the problems and all that. Um, And so as far as getting into software, like I had done some numerical methods in college and stuff like that, but it was all small. Um, That was when I realized I really enjoyed software within the overall technology space, like actually building software. I liked what you could achieve with it. Um, And that was late 90s. And friends of mine uh, in Toronto, um, start, we're starting a company, uh, some friends that I got to college with and, uh, and they pinged me because they were trying to find people like they, it, it was just very different. T- it wasn't like there were software engineers on every corner, kind of like feels like everybody's a software engineer now, which is awesome. Um, I know. But, you know, you, it, it was, we were mostly comprised of people coming from other disciplines, um, which was interesting in its own right. Like, I think we brought some different perspectives. Um, so anyway, I joined them, and there were some amazing software engineers there who I really learned from and, and mentored me and grew me. Like I started out doing QA, and then sort of we called it systems engineering today—that would be SRE—and that was my real transition into sort of software as, a, as an industry and as a as a career, um, and have been doing it ever since.
0: So whenever people say words I don't understand, I ask them okay. uh, what what was s you said SRE?
1: Oh, SRE uh, site reliability engineering. Uh, ah. this is a, uh, I think Google coined the term, uh, really around taking people who were doing well, trying to solve the problem of large scale operations by taking the discipline of software engineering and applying it to the problem. So bringing much more automation, I mean, their, their group, as they describe it, I'm probably not the best person to describe this, but their group, as they describe it is about 50% people coming from an operational systems background and learning more about you know, software engineering practices and then 50% people coming from uh, more of a software engineering background and really diving down into the details of the systems. and Using that combination of disciplines to create a much more structured perspective of how you can do, um, I'm trying, I'm hesitating calling it operations because it was really moving away from the classic, like we just sit here and watch the lights and if something goes wrong, you know, we try to follow a run book and then go call someone else. And really, into like the infrastructure as its own delivery of a system, and and um, this is where I would—I s- don't know if it's totally accurate to say this—but a lot of the principles, like infrastructure as code, and sort of really turning all of that definition into something that you manage using the same principles that we've developed and, and honed in software engineering.
0: I like it. It sounds good, right?
1: <laughs> I, I can't take so- any credit for it. I just see it happen and try to, you know, learn from it and use it in our organization.
0: I like how our culture is shifting that way too. It's more of like open discussion points rather than I am the central expert. And I really like how the human engineering culture and technology culture is shifted to let's be useful and helpful, have discussions, figure it out, push the best ideas forward. That's, that's very different from the, you know, early to late nineties, where it was like, "Who's the hero?" That's a jerk, and yeah. So I'm I'm proud of us as like a group of people.
1: Well, in many in many dimensions, we have long ways to go in so many different dimensions. Yeah, there's so many things that we we've learned, and I think the the things that we've learned about how to build software better and how to more incrementally improve, we're also learning to take and apply to other things like our you know our cultures and our models of working and stuff like that, and sort of Becoming more growth mindset oriented as a community, uh, as a, a discipline. I'm not really sure what to call it, but basically software engineering. So
0: you you go to the factory, you start writing some software, you realize you can bring some value, and then you pop into Circle CI, or where there's like a bunch of different stuff in between.
1: There's a lot of time in there. Um, yeah. So yeah so i went to this uh startup in toronto uh it was called docspace the docspace company i mean it had a few different names um we were acquired in 2000 uh, by a company called critical path uh, which was a hosted email platform amongst other things Uh, that's when i moved down to the bay area um 2000 2001 happened uh that was an interesting time but i stayed with that company for quite a while um a lot of things changed i ended up doing a broad spectrum of different things from some sort of technical product management to I eventually ended up in a group called the Office of the CTO and then working on mobile strategy, just a bunch of different um, areas that really allowed me to get a broad perspective on the industry and on software development. I mean, I wasn't just sitting at a terminal cranking out code, but really uh, getting exposure to a lot of different things that I think ultimately set me up better to be in the role that I'm in now. like you know, spending time with customers, spending time thinking about product and not just being very uh, technical, not that you can't do that. Lots of people are great CTOs and have come from, you know, purely software development. Uh, then there's a lot in the middle there that's just, honestly, I have no idea what I'm doing right now. Maybe I'll try to build a small application. Maybe I'll go do some consulting, like just kind of one of the great things about living in the Bay Area, if you're in software, it's, you can try a lot of different things. Um, and ultimately, I think um, if you have always sort of held up your part of the bargain, I'm trying to find a great way to express it, but if you have always done good work and you know, when you've committed to delivering something to people, delivered it for them, then you can take some bigger risks because later when something doesn't work out, you can, you'll always have an opportunity to go back and say, hey, is there something I can help you out with now And building that network? Uh, it was really kind of my safety net to try some bigger and kind of scarier things.
0: So your general responsibilities as CTO, at CircleCI, you spend time with customers, spend time with product, grow your team, do some other things, experiments. Is that like a good overview?
1: Yeah, so I have a uh, responsibility at this point for um, all of engineering, I actually, let me be clear, I have a platform engineering group, which is responsibility for, responsible for infrastructure, so that includes security and SRE, and then I have a product engineering group, um, which is building the core functionality that we deliver to our customers, and I also have responsibility for documentation. We have other engineers in the organization uh, under a customer engineering org, which is responsible for partners, um, you know, solutions, um, support, those sorts of things. So we have a- a very, because we sell a very technical product, um, our customer facing organization, uh, or organizations are very deep in technical skills. Uh, so there's lots of people that I would absolutely refer to as engineers who are not in my organization.
0: That's amazing, yeah, that's cool. I like it, I, I always like, some people asked me recently they said, how do these companies get so big with all these engineering teams? Like we have a product team, they might have, you know, 30 people, they're like, how do they get to like 300? And I, the way you responded with like you have partner, customer integration, like all these different things will help paint a picture. Cause I couldn't answer that question super well when I was asked it. So mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know, I'll, I'll go out in the world and talk to smart people and then I'll come back.
1: <laughs> yeah. I would say um, even within the scope of um, what's my org, like, like more, mm-hmm. we, we build the core effectively, right? And add a certain layer you're in a place where as someone who's working with customers or the community, you can build extensions and stuff on top of our platform. Um, for even my part, growing and scaling organizations is a real challenge for everybody. I would say the, the two conversations that I keep participating in outside of Circle CI. so I'm, another great thing about being in the Bay Area, I know a lot of CTOs, a lot of VPs of engineering who have similar challenges, and it's nice to have that peer group. Um, I say often, there's only one CTO in my company. I don't have another person that I can go be like, what do you think about this thing? There are companies with more than one, but, but we're oh, not yeah. one of them. Um, and, uh, and so it's nice to have that exposure, but the, the key conversations that I'm generally in right now are one, building distributed and remote teams. Um, that's a challenge that a lot of people are are trying to sort out, given just the, the kind of pressure and... and um, density of companies and opportunity in the Bay Area makes it hard to build a a team here. Uh, And the other is um, sort of maintaining culture through rapid scaling, right? Like you set out with a vision of what kind of company you want to be when you're really small, but as you're, you know, doubling and tripling your team in the course of six months or 12 months, can you really effectively maintain and then combine those two problems, right? I'm hiring people all over the world and trying to make sure they're bought into not just our vision and mission, but the approach that we take to building software and working with each other. Um, those, I'm not about to spit out the answer to all those. Those are the most oh, interesting problems as, as we do this. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I fully expect like a, a written answer that's also a plan of action for other people to implement. No, but, so I, I was researching you. And mm-hmm. first of all, I'm a customer. I'm a very happy customer. Thank you. Uh, I've been a customer for a long time really enjoy it. It works and we don't worry about it. And it's like, we chose circle CI and it's like, there's, you don't change your products if they just work. So I'm a fan. Um, but I was reading about how, you know, you've increased the, the team like fourfold, like it's, it's growing rapidly. And I was also looking like at other executives in your company, you know, people that have their hands on culture. Like I found this guy, David Mann. I don't know if you're like friends with them or not but he was like head of HR. And so I was like, I saw that they did, you guys got like best places to work in San Francisco and through Hypergrowth, growth, you got that. And so I'm wondering, you know, not necessarily what your secret is, like what the ones is, but like, how do you approach it? What are your thoughts on scaling? And, you know, what's your one secret?
1: <laughs> um, oh, I think you're gonna be super disappointed because the reality is I, I don't, know that anyone has this figured out. I think one of the interesting things about these, um, and someone will try to convince you that I'm wrong about this and what I'd be, I would love to meet them. Um, Not that many people go through these cycles multiple times, right? Like uh, a lot of people who start companies and end up having successful companies do a bunch of small things I, when I talk, I talk a lot about sort of my credentials and here are all the tiny little companies that I was CTO of. And that doesn't necessarily set me up to go through this scale. Um, And so I would say peer groups are huge, right? Finding people who have been through that cycle, just, they might be just ahead of you, but they figured some things out and they failed at a bunch of things. Both of those are really valuable to you, right? To know you're about to try this thing. Trust me, this is how it went where I did it. And this is what we ended up doing instead. so like getting that kind of information from others. Um, and then hopefully passing that down to the people who are who are following close behind you. Um, so that's more about just the more meta how to think and how to solve these problems as you run into them. Um, I think the things where we've learned um, and seen where we're maybe behind or wish we had done things earlier, um, being really clear about not just clear about values, but like writing them down um, and sharing them um, and reinforcing them. I think um, signaling is super important, or both modeling and signaling. I'll just call those out in different ways. So, one, if you have some stated values, you should probably be living them yourself. Um, and two, when you give recognition, Uh, make sure that the recognition that you're giving is aligned with the values that you're claiming because the recognition will be so much more powerful than the document that you wrote, right? You can get all the posters in the world with like pictures of nice sunsets and put them on the wall talking about what your corporate values are. But if you then call people out as fantastic for doing things that are counter to those values or or don't align with those values, that's what people are going to interpret and and pay attention to. and uh, I would say those are a couple big ones. And then finally in the in the distributed model, not just writing down your values but writing down everything. and we're, we're a little interesting because we have a pretty decent density in our San Francisco office and then distribution. Um, and so it is easy to fall into the trap. I think companies that are completely distributed have their own challenges for sure, but everybody recognizes immediately the ch- challenge of being a remote or distributed employee of that company, as opposed to if you have kind of a, a core and then some people satellite to that, um, it's it's easier to fall into the trap of, oh yeah, we had this conversation, everybody was there, uh, so everyone knows this, but really some people were there and a lot of people weren't. I mean, we're, we are pretty distributed. Um, and in particular, as we get into multiple time zones we have a bunch of folks in europe a bunch of folks in japan there are huge amounts of time where they can't get access to the subject matter experts on things and so if stuff isn't clearly written down in a way that they can find it um uh, it's just it's everybody grinds to a halt uh which is terrible um so those are a few key points that we've learned recently.
0: how do you do the recognition thing like how, like how do you do it like obviously it's in your culture that giving this recognition is, you know, more powerful than the document you write. But how do you ensure you guys have over like five hundred people, over like two hundred people?
1: Like, yeah, we're like 250, 240, okay. 250, something like that. Yeah.
0: Got it. So you're you're around that size, and so like, how do you how do you encourage this to happen through your rapid growth? Like, how do you do it?
1: Um, so we have a spectrum, uh, and to be clear, I'm calling these everything I'm telling you is because like hard won or hard learned lessons right um and there was a point at which so so sorry let me go back a little bit we've consistently in our all hands calls taken time to call out specific people and say you know this person did this thing and that's awesome and we're really excited about them and you know round of applause and whatever like first of all that's that's not hard anybody not doing that like please do that right like take time uh and do it at a at a high level, right? I think it's it's important to recognize that people all through the company are seeing what people are doing. Um, so as And that's been an interesting to work, thing to work with as you grow. You know, when you're 30 people, which I think is about the point we started doing this, uh, generally you're like, yeah, I saw every one of these people do these different things and I can just talk about it. You get to a scale where there's people in the company you've basically never met. And so really going out and recruiting for that uh, information, or, or you know, getting people to nominate those sorts of things, um, but along the way, it was pointed out at some point, like we're stating these values, and we're giving recognition to people. I mean, it's not like they're doing things that we all think are terrible or illegal or anything like that, but we're we're reinforcing behaviors in some senses um, that are not the things that we're trying to you know drive to, right? I think a, a classic example of that uh, in a growing company is sort of hero culture, right? When you start out, you need you have a tiny little company, three, four people, everyone kind of needs to be a hero. Everyone needs to be great at everything and willing to go and do kind of anything and and they're all putting in extra hours and all that kind of stuff. And you try to shift at some point, and I don't know that anyone can put their finger on what that point is, to something that's sustainable, right? We need sort of high leverage, efficiency, the ability for people to have big impact with small efforts like those are actually the things that you're driving for. Um, of course, you want people to be focused and excited and driven, but at some point, you start to feel more like a large organization and less like a few people in a garage like trying to change the world, right? And um, and so you want to sh- like in order to make that kind of change, you really need to be focused on the sort of the behaviors and, and values that you're rewarding. Um, and so now, kind of over the course of that time, when we ask, you know, who, who would you want to give recognition to, you know, who should be kind of raised up and pointed out, the first question is, which of these values are they embodying, right? Like, what is it about what they're doing that shows that they are clearly demonstrating and are a great representation of what we believe as a company we, we want to be? Right. And I phrase it like that, not because it's totally aspirational, but rather because every day you want to be thinking like, is this in line with the values of this company or is it not? And as you get bigger and bigger, again, really living those yourself and and being like and expressing and reinforcing those through those kinds of actions, I think is really important.
0: I like it. And it, I'm learning that, too, as a parent, like they will do what you do, not what you say. Yeah, lessons learned like every day.
1: (laughs) Uh, I have so many lessons. I I don't, I don't know what the, uh, the audience rating is on your podcast. So I won't, um, I won't give you examples, but certainly language that I choose to use that I tell Uh, my children not to use, for example, um, that doesn't work. Right. They just, they listen to you and they're like, that's how we talk. Um, and so, uh, I mean, I just use, I'll, I'll just say expressive language. I don't, not offensive language. Well, offensive, if you don't think kids should use words like that. Creative. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but the few times I hear it, I'm like, where did you, oh, of course I know where you heard that word. Like, great. Um, yep. So yeah, very small example. Um, but uh, yeah, many things. I mean, in terms of just attitude, how you treat people, like modeling that so your kids will will do it uh, in the same way, I think is is really important.
0: So I've got some questions here from the audience, if that's cool.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So one of the things, because you're, I think you're uniquely positioned to, to share on this topic, so you've gone through, you have like a founder mentality and ownership mentality. Uh, you've been a part of these growing companies and, and there's a lot of change that happens like as these companies grow. And so one of the questions that we get a lot is, how do you overcome the resistance to change?
1: So that's a really interesting question. Um, for context, I am not a founder of CircleCI. Um, myself. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's I'm, fine. I'm,
0: I'm at, you, you founded other companies. You yes. founded like four other companies, all right? Absolutely, okay. yeah. All but right. I, just,
1: I want to make sure that the audience, whoever's listening yeah. is clear. Um, I started a company with two other folks. It sort of morphed into a different company with one of those and, and one other person. And then we were acquired into CircleCI. CircleCI was about 20 people. And it was within over the course of the next year that myself and one of those, my two partners, uh, Jim, so we basically, Jim ended up being the CEO, I ended up being the CTO. So through the growth at at CircleCI, it is a little bit different because it was, we didn't have that, like, this is our creation sort of thing. Uh, But we've gone through a ton of change. Um, And interestingly, some of that change was driven by us right? As we came in and thought, okay, this company has a lot of potential and there's lots of room to scale and be successful. But here are some things we think are going to have to be different about how we think and work. Um, at the same time, these are the things we really value and we're trying to hang on to those. So, um, I, I would say I'm not super resistant to change. And it's probably not like a very helpful answer, but, um, I think we both, I'm thinking about Jim and I because yeah. we've worked together for so long, but but we both recognize the difference between different stages of a company because we've worked in sort of companies of different sizes and, that sort of thing, um, and are willing to embrace that, create clarity about whatever it might be, right? We're going to create a different structure in the organization, we're going to change some reporting models, you know, whatever, um, you know, those are the kinds of things that I think the kinds of changes that people resist or, or that are challenging because there's some unknowns, there's some uncertainty. Um, I'm like, probably to a, to a fault, comfortable with uncertainty. Um, and maybe that's what allows me to be again in this, you know, this kind of role. Um, and I, I would say overall, my interest is always at this time and for the next foreseeable period, which is usually pretty short in a company of our size even, what is the best thing for the company? Like what, what are our key problems and what kinds of changes can we make to better align ourselves to support or to solve those problems? Um, and I think when you're thinking about it from that perspective, um, and I think there are, there are great founders who are like this, right? Um, uh, meaning, it's they're still operating at a large scale in a in a company that they started, and I think what happens with those people is they're is similar. They're constantly thinking, "What is the best thing?" Like the success of this company, uh, if I'm the founder, is is a great success for me. Whether you were thinking about it financially or like in terms of just the the personal pride that comes from building something successful, um, or people have other motivations, whatever your motivation might be, um, and therefore being tied to what is clearly the success versus this was my vision at the beginning. And if we shift from that vision, then that's a slight against me. I think that's kind of this founder syndrome thing that people talk about. Um, I haven't really worked with people like that, uh, but my going back to kids, my children actually went to a very small school that was recently started that was like that where the person who started the school sort of continued to, they don't go there anymore. I don't
0: doubt anyone's going to try to figure this out, but this is (laughs) an Elon Musk school, right? No. (laughs) Um,
1: That'd be awesome. But they, they were trying to drive the school according to uh, their original vision, as opposed to allowing others to come in who had more experience operationally at scale. I think that's actually, that's, amazingly, my analogy reminded me of something, which is bringing in people who have experience at different levels of operation. Uh, and you know, I talked about peer networks outside of, of my organization for me and my role, but just ensuring that as you build, you're bringing in people who really have the skills, experience, whatever, to operate at those different levels. I think when we, when we hear about or see Again, founders who have scaled companies to you know ridiculous levels, way way bigger than Circle CI is right now. Um, what you'll often see is a great network of of support, whether it's mentors or advisors or coaches or name or the executives. They bring in recognizing your. I'm a little bit off of change, but recognizing your okay. strengths and weaknesses and rather than saying cool i'm not good at these three things i'm going to spend all of my time trying to be good at those things bring someone in who's awesome at those things and empower them to just run with them right like that's a way way better outcome than trying to be great at everything like this is my company and i'm going to own these things like i I think that ability to to really focus on what you bring um and drive that, and find great people to fill in the other parts. Like recognize that you have gaps. Everybody has lots of them, and fill those with people who who really are awesome at those things. Um, is a great way to go through that that change.
0: I don't even like the question that much anymore. <laughs> like so, as you're responding, I'm like, okay, I'm 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 thinking about your response. I'm like, okay, I'm getting it. Like I'm thinking about the question, and then I'm like. I have two thoughts. The first one is we could either apply your logic, which I very much enjoy. How do you overcome the resistance to change? Find someone who's really good at overcoming the resistance to change and bring them in. (laughs) That would be like a a direct answer using your logic, which I love. But before that, I thought, I don't even like the, um, the question a whole lot because is it, let's like analyze a little bit, is the question implies that you need to overcome the resistance to change. Like, what if you just, what if it's just like acknowledging the resistance to change?
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, it it does assume that everybody is resistant to change. I would say people who go through this kind of scaling effectively are probably more comfortable with change, which is not to say if you're not, you can't do it, but, uh, and and to your point, find people who are going to help you or who are are going to drive it effectively. but uh, maybe it's a character trait that's pretty good for people who are going to, you know, start a company and then and then grow it to, you know, to a large scale. It's just to be comfortable because change is going to happen. Whether it's the early days, um, pivoting, trying to find product market fit, or if it's, you know, we used to be a team of engineers and now we're a fully functioning company. We have G and A and marketing and sales and and recognizing along that path. These are not things that I'm good at or that I even know anything about, but there's people out there who have done it and done it really, really well and can come in and be great at it. Uh, I I will say for me personally, one of my greatest feelings through all of this growth is every time we bring someone in, uh, whether it's in my team or outside of my team, who takes over something that I was having to do just because someone had to do it and watching them be so much better at it Uh, And learning, not because I want to do it someday, but just because it's fun to watch people who are expert or amazing at things that they do. Uh, And just the fun experience to see people be great at things. Um, And to have your scope be reduced to the things that you really love to do versus trying to do, you know, everything.
0: Now let's talk a little bit about like one-on-ones or leading your direct report team. How do you approach that? Do you have like a specific cadence? Is it set in stone? Do you do it as needed? Like, what are your thoughts on on one-on-ones?
1: Um, yeah, so first, again, I'm talking about scaling a little bit, right? My When I first joined and then first started managing folks at, at CircleCI, um, my one-on-ones were all with individual engineers, basically, the whole engineering team. Um, I started right out of the gate with a, a weekly cadence, which meant, I basically spent my entire week in one-on-ones at the time that was appropriate because uh, the team was a little unmanaged, honestly. And so just sort of learning what everyone was doing and there there weren't great structures in place to operate. Um, And so a lot of communication information came from one-on-ones. I would say I would advise against being in that situation, meaning if the only way that communication is happening and, and, uh, understanding is traveling is through one-on-ones. Um, you know, we've all played broken telephone. That ends up being a, a, a bad situation. Um, and specifically, I would call out um, this expression "shuttle d- diplomacy." I think it's called like the notion of people sort of having a debate through other people, or like meeting with two of your directs and you know them having concerns with each other get out of that scenario quickly and find ways for people to learn to communicate i mean facilitate conversations if you have to but don't be the go-between uh because that can end up being unhealthy it's not not a ton of specific examples at circle ci but that's something i've definitely learned in this process Um, and then building over time more again operational structure so that your one-on-ones are at least my one-on-ones are very much about sort of personal development, maybe getting a quick check-in on something. But if you spend 30 minutes with someone just getting status, there are so many better ways to get status um, that make that not a good use of time. And you can focus that time on, on more critical issues, coaching people, growing them, getting your own feedback. Um, And so I guess the, the other transition is now my directs are, you know, VPs and directors, sort of thing, uh, versus being individuals. Um, I still have one-on-ones basically every week, unless I'm, you know, traveling or something like that. Um, the you asked about being set in stone. The schedule tends to shift a lot because all of us have, you know, things coming up that we have to deal with. But we all value the time that we can spend together, um, and uh, and use that to, for. I mean, the conversations are probably different in terms of what people need, but the, you know, the overall goal of the one-on-one in that scenario is still the same, right? for me, I'm looking at a higher level of abstraction about what's going on and where the problems are and seeking out the big ones. Um, And just making sure that the people that work for me have what they need in order to be successful in their roles, Um, you know, kind of same principles just applied to a different level of the space, I don't
0: know what to call it. No, I totally, I like that you said you spend a lot of time on personal development of the individual versus just like status updates, right? Spending that time to care about them and do the human thing, super important. But I'm curious, how do you continue the conversation meeting to meeting? Do you just like keep a Google doc? Do you have a tool, like how do you do that?
1: That's a great question. I um, I mostly take notes. Mm-hmm. I, walk cool. around with a paper, I walk around with a paper notebook uh, and a pen and I always have to explain it to people when I'm on calls yeah. because I'm looking down and writing and I'm like, oh, by the way, I'm not, you know, I don't have a video game over here. I'm, I literally just I have a pen because when I write something down with a pen, I actually never need to look at it again because uh, I'll just remember it. But anything short of that, if I type it somewhere or whatever, i lose lose it. Um, and then... One thing that I would say I have been inconsistent at, but tried to maintain, is um, just having that same cadence around specific actions, if there are any that come out of it. And that's that's changed a little bit. I would say, like at the IC level, maybe that's going to be the case um, at the at much higher levels. Maybe there are specific things, but the most of our work, and I don't know if this is unique to engineering, but most of our work, especially like IC's achieving things over the course of uh, a week or whatever is tracked somewhere else, right? I mean, this is why you don't really need to be spending a lot of time on status because you have Jira or Trello or whatever, like like the actual work that you're doing. So it's rather the what were the points of conversation, what concerns were raised, and did we did we address those over the course of the week. Um, I tend not to have. I, I try to get away from like big projects that I have with my reports in terms of things we're working on, and more like this is a thing we're going to get done by next week, uh, because those bigger projects tend to go into the bucket of contentious time that's being allocated to other like other projects, and so um, it, it tends to be more. Hey, here's a thing that you could go do. Let's check back in on that next week um, because it's it's kind of the. Ancillary time if, if you will not the kind of core work of that person. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, are you a fan of Atlassian a couple other products you use them or no? So we use Jira um, mm-hmm.
1: And we use we use some confluence in some parts of our uh, org. I am not a fan of wikis in general um, but I've realized i mentioned levels of abstraction earlier i've realized that my direction to people is should be cuz like everybody who you know grows up through different levels i still have opinions on things that i should not express uh my direction should be here's the problem we're trying to solve right we need some consistent availability of information we have a distributed team people need to be able to help themselves let's find a way to make that available and that is much more important than I personally don't like wikis, therefore, you should go do this other thing. I mean, my reasons for not liking wikis are kind of personal. I don't think they're the most it's important. Okay. Like, it, it just, like, it doesn't matter at my level because I'm the person who's going to be writing all this stuff, right? So me saying I don't like to use that form of, like, Confluence doesn't have great markdown support. They have their own, like, Atlassian markup because that existed probably predates markdown. Who cares what I think? Honestly, like I'm, just, I'm not going to do the writing. So if people like to write in that, have at it. You know? I just want there to be centrally available, searchable, findable information. And what other people choose to use as a tool is fine. Jira um, is like a tool that everybody loves to have thoughts about. Um, but ultimately, it's well integrated into tons of things. You get a ton of stuff for free. And so it has staying power, right? Everybody knows it. Everybody knows how to use it. It gets the job done. And honestly, if your whole life is about what tool you're using and not what software you're building, then you might be focusing on the wrong thing.
0: Or what value you're bringing to the customer.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. right. They don't care if you're using Jira or not.
0: Now, I did a um, an interesting dual episode with Atlassian. I'm not sure if they aired yet, but uh, Shri is their CTO. And then Archana, I hope I'm saying that right, is their CIO and so we did like a CTO CIO mm. uh, back-to-back episode which was pretty cool but um, their culture at Atlassian is amazing so like it, when, you, when you were talking about defining the culture and then enacting it and rewarding it um, mm-hmm. their first uh, their first culture item is open company no bullshit that's like that's the bullet point and because they're about transparency so I thought that was that was really cool uh-huh. Yeah.
1: One notable thing that I've seen from them is that they have made decisions to change culture at scale and achieved it effectively. Um, I I mean, I, I don't have all the details, so I'm certainly not an expert to speak on this. But I've seen, you know, specific things called out about their culture and they were like, yeah, we're going to fix that. And next thing you know, they're like, yeah, we fixed that. And that, like very demonstrably clearly from the outside, which changing culture is harder than building culture in the first place um and for i, I, I mean I, I have lots of great friends that work there um and so i i see more kind of like i, I get that weird inside view just from talking to friends and stuff like that um and uh and that's always impressive i mean that's a real achievement to be able to say yeah like we or or we're not living up to the values in this way and here's what we're going to go do and we're going to go do it right now and we're going to make sure that we realign ourselves around that like that's that's hugely impressive to me.
0: I love your passion for not liking wikis. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to make you a shirt or something that says like wikis and has like an X through it or like a line through it. And then Perfect. you can wear that to conferences. I uh,
1: Yeah, I will. Uh, sure. I'll wear it for sure. <laughs> I, I, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, it's funny because it's one of those things that I'm learning to stop caring about. And so I don't know if I want to trigger a lot more conversations with people where they come and say, oh, my wikis are amazing. Uh, It's not that I I want to have the argument. It's that I've realized that's not a good use of my time. I I mean, now I feel like I have to say something. It's literally just the kind of ability to track changes and have like useful review of changes um, because I think people – decide that they understand something and uh and write it and then you know original content gets lost and things like that so I just think there are other forms that are better it's definitely not the markdown that stresses me out okay
0: <laughs> so what's the as we start to wrap up here i'm i want to know like what's the thing that you're most excited about at circle ci right now
1: um well i the thing that i spend the most time thinking about is clearly just scaling the org and and you know maintaining what we're doing but from a um, product perspective, from an offering perspective. the thing that excites me consistently at CircleCI is just where we sit um, in terms of developer pipeline. Like as someone who is an engineer at heart, has been doing software engineering for so long, I've lived through so many of the failed ideas that we've had in terms of, you know, waterfall and year long process or projects and like giant requirements documents. So really lived through this transition to how we think about doing software development now. And being in a position to watch and see, um, sounds creepy when I, I don't have video cameras, but like watching just as, as things move through our platform, how different companies think about building software. I talk to a lot of our customers. Um, I see how they go about their work. Um, like really understanding and, and having visibility into you know, successful and less successful engineering organizations. Um, is is very cool as someone who just loves the the craft of software development and the the practice of actually delivering value. Um, And so what I'm excited about for us is being able to actually give that value back to our customers. So understanding not just like you ran a build and your build failed, but here are some trends in the work that you're doing over time, step one. Oh, that's cool. And then here's how you look relative to the industry um, is a very interesting kind of problem that we're, we're digging into in terms of just data that we have in aggregate.
0: People um, love that, by the way. They love comparing themselves in the industry.
1: Absolutely, and I think there's real, I, as much as I love leaderboards and getting gold stars, like there's real value in that, right? I mean, if I am doing something half as well as, my competitors, I'll call it my competitors, but really what you would compare to is, is people who are, you know, maybe similar sized teams at a similar stage of company or whatever, Um, then I want to know, yeah, Yeah, cohorts, exactly. And so I want to know so that I can look at key areas that I would want to improve. And if I'm better than everybody else, like good for me, but I'm going to stop worrying about this and think about a different problem where I'm not beating everybody and go spend my time on that, right? So I think that's really very interesting, very cool and something that we are uniquely positioned to to reason about and provide to our customers. Um, And then separately, honestly, just resilience within the the ecosystem in the sense that uh, we can tell when dependent systems are broken because we're using those dependent systems constantly, right? Whether it's where your source control is, where your packages are. I mean, as a software developer, when something breaks in my build, you know, now I've got, a couple hours or whatever digging into that like why is this package not working did something change is this but we could probably tell you in most cases because we have this big aggregate view that says hey this package manager is currently down or somebody upgraded this library and everybody's build broke like that's really useful and interesting information to have um that is just not like because of the scale that we operate and because of where we're sitting we ha- we have a unique Viewpoint and
0: are, are competitors doing that or no? Uh, none that
1: I know of, and uh, more importantly, nobody has the same scale in terms of just total number of
0: projects. Nobody circle CI. You guys are the best,
1: absolutely, there's that, yeah. but also yeah. the, the biggest,
0: yeah. Oh, you're the biggest and the best. Also, sweet branding move. I see email like you guys always put circle CI in the emails, so. I still, I have them all funneled into a folder since I've abstracted and hired more people. But um, I see the emails coming. It's a smart thing that you put your brand in the email. So I'm just like always seeing CircleCI. I,
1: I can't take any credit for that, but I agree. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I love it. No, that sounds real exciting. I look forward to it. Um, if you, do you have any sort of like, if you could off the top of your head, you could say no. But if you could like wave a a magic wand and have the entire industry make like one change uh, uh, based off of what you've learned that the most successful companies do, what would that be?
1: Oh, wow. That is huge. I I have so many, I'm not even sure where to start. I I will say the thing that is on my mind at the moment uh, is which is not for everybody, because it depends on what scale you are as a company. And I have all kinds of comments about people trying to do things too early, but um, resilience in production, right? This notion of chaos and and all these things, like I'm very interested in uh, in many different disciplines about accepting that things are going to break and designing systems uh, in a way that is basically makes that assumption. Um, And I think, Especially in a in a universe where many many companies are going from you know monoliths to microservices and like simple systems to complex systems, um, many have failed to recognize the transition in complexity that comes as a result, and and built the resilience into their systems to support that. Um, I think we would all be much happier if that was just a, co- a common practice
0: and a common pattern. Okay, so resilience and production is you would like that to be a common practice and a common pattern. Where can I go learn more about that? Like how to, where can I learn? Is there a good book you can recommend? Uh, blog, do you have blog about it on CircleCI's blog or?
1: Um, not yet, but um, it's one of those subjects that has come to me in like little bits and pieces kind of from everywhere, but um, there's a conference in San Francisco called Chaos Comp, which is probably pretty. Chaos. Well yeah. Um, so, like, if you read anything on Netflix blog about their chaos engineering practices, chaos monkey is like a big thing, right? We basically just like kill systems in production and make sure that everything else stays um, running. That mental model that says something is definitely going to break at some point. Um, I, I think it expands to more than just systems, which is what excites me about it. I, but um, those are good. Good places to start for sure, uh, and then you'll once you tap into that, you're in the you know you're in the network, and you'll start finding trails out from there that will interest you
0: uh, for sure. Okay, so go in there with the mindset of resilience and production. Find some chaos monkeys at Netflix, and they will lead you to where you need to go. Yes. Perfect. Now let's give some context to this resilience and production. Cause you mentioned at the beginning, some hesitance to size, uh, what size engineering org should I start to pay attention to this? If I'm two people right now, should I be obsessing about this or paying attention well, to the customer value or like where, yeah, where should I,
1: you, you can get away with a lot, uh, when you're small. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't have a magic number. Like I don't have the Dunbar number for resilience or whatever. But okay. um, the thing that is more important to me there is um, people try to build services out of the gate. Uh, and when you don't, when you're you know—you're two people, probably you don't understand your business model and you don't understand the access patterns of your customers or what, what's really going to work in your system and what's not. So you don't really understand your domain either. Um, and then you carve that up into a bunch of tiny pieces because, um, you know, because you read a book that says that's a good idea or whatever, the overhead and complexity of that will probably cause you to never find your business model and never find product market fit and never have to worry about resilience. So, (laughs) so don't do that. Uh, it's basically at the point for, for me, where I wish we had been paying more attention to that was at the point where we said, you know what? We have scaling issues in our sort of monolithic infrastructure we definitely understand our business. We know who our customer is. We know how to use the product. Like we are, we've checked all the boxes on this list that say we should start building microservices. But what we didn't do uh, is set great patterns and practices for our teams to say, here's how we're going to go about doing this. We sort of said, you know, you're smart engineers, you'll figure it out. Um, and it turns out smart product engineers, people who spend all of their time working in a monolith building like business logic and customer value aren't necessarily experts in distributed systems. And just assuming that they will be, probably a mistake. Um, and so as if you find yourself in that transition, right, of where you're going to be adding a lot of complexity, just recognize you're adding that complexity. And it's very difficult to come back and retrofit it later. Um, so be sure that you're ready to invest in that overhead and complexity before you start to you know, break your system apart in that way. That would be a key inflection point in my mind.
0: Okay, good, good. Um, l- last question as we wrap up. This is the last one, I promise. Um, You're promise. This is a hypothetical. It's a fun one. So relax, it's all good. You're at a guitar shop. Right? Okay. Building a picture. You're at a guitar shop. You're looking at the different guitars on the wall, excited. You find one you like. You're going to plug it into this amp to see how it sounds, right? You're going to get its tone. And sitting right next to you as you plug this guitar into the amp is Elon Musk you just notice it's like just musk just sitting there uh he happens to play a lot of music i i made that up but you start talking and he invites you uh into the new 2020 tesla the sports one the one that's not really out yet you guys go for a drive you end up at his house he's got a time machine and you get to go into that time machine and go back and just whisper something in your ear of you at your first job like something maybe about leadership or some advice to your past self at your first job, what would that be? What would you whisper in your past self ear?
1: That was such an amazing scene setting. I was like guessing the whole way where this was going to go. I know. Uh, I have so many answers to so many parts along the way, but okay. So, um, (laughs) I think, so I'm going to throw something out there, um, that's maybe interesting or not, but one of the things that I've taken away from so many of my conversations with leaders especially is the, uh, and we talk about it and people like junior engineers and stuff talk about this notion of imposter syndrome, right? Feeling like um, I'm gonna get found out, like nobody knows that I am, like I don't actually know what I'm doing or whatever. And what's interesting to me now is to see how consistently pervasive that is in, I don't know if that's just this industry or like everybody that works at anything. Um, And that ultimately the real value we can all have is just being open and sharing with each other. Like, hey, this is a thing we're trying to figure it out. We don't really know. Like no one's ever done this before. I think that's a big part of it. It's so many of the things that we all do, no one has ever done before. So feeling like, "Hey, I don't know if I should be doing this thing because I don't have expertise," um, is a real problem. And I think, um, like recognizing that me or other people like me who were, you know, young and sort of just starting out in this industry, and recognizing that that's gonna, you know, that's something that travels with you, um, and uh, and that ultimately like the best solution to that problem, again, is to just be open, share, like, hey, we're trying to do a thing and it didn't work out very well. Um, That will support other people and it will support you all along the way. Um, And I think when I was younger, so to bring this back to your, a little more tightly tied to your question, I always had this impression that I had to have the answers. Like someone has hired me to do this job and therefore I must have the answers. Um, And recognizing that, you know, I think as I've gotten older and hopefully wiser, I've started to realize that nobody has all the answers. And that's why, that's what we're here for, is to like figure it out together. Um, and you get more comfortable knowing that you know less than you thought and that there's so much left for you to learn. And that if you build a great network of people uh, and people around you and just be open and honest about these things, uh, everyone will do better. Um, That's probably the best solution to that. I wish I had known that, I guess, when I was younger. That was super rambly, so I I don't know how much time I would get in my time machine visiting myself, but that's (laughs) that's the message. I would write it down a few times to make sure I was a little tighter in the delivery, Yeah, that's that's the message.
0: The current delivery is you just whispered you're an imposter into your past self (laughs) 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 seer
1: Yes, if I had one second, that would be a terrible takeaway.
0: Uh, (laughs) Anyway. good. But here's the thing. All right, so... The first time I heard the word imposter syndrome, I was at a conference and apparently everybody else knew what it was, but I didn't. And this guy speaking said, who has imposter syndrome? And the whole room raised their hand. And I did not raise my hand <laughs> because I did not know what it was. And I was like, I'm not an imposter in my initial thought. And then they went on. I was trying to dis- uh, derive the meaning from the continuous conversation. And so what I had picked up in that, in that moment was that like, it feels like you shouldn't be there or you're going like, it feels like not right that you're in the position you're in that you don't deserve it. And so my first thought was, Oh no, like I work super ridiculously hard. So when I'm in a position, like I definitely deserve to be there. That's why I work so hard to get there. Um, and so then the second I started to like research it, I found out that that wasn't, that wasn't the exact meaning of it. It was that you're, you have this actual fear that you're going to be exposed as a fraud. And or at least that's what like the Wikipedia and New York Times type stuff says when I when I Googled for it. But I was, I was like, I, I've just maybe it's a personality trait of mine or something, but I've never experienced the imposter syndrome um, just because like I work super hard for for where I want to go. And then I'm always figuring out that like I learned really early in life that I'm wrong most of the time. And so now it's like, all right, let's let's take the position that I'm probably going to be wrong, and I need to surround myself. Like my system's probably going to fail. How do I surround myself with really smart, bright people um, in order to minimize my total failure? Um, and so that's just the one area where, like, I I don't I don't have the I don't feel that way. But I think a lot of people do.
1: because they so raise their hand. I agree. I think that was an excellent tie in between resilience and its application to other things and, and this, this message. And I think that the, the, um, the transition, right? The realization that you're talking about that's so valuable that I'm trying to express very poorly to my former self is, um, is that no one ever is, has all the answers. Right. And, And so it's developing the comfort with, that with the fact that everyone around you is searching for a better way to do something everyone around you is making mistakes all the time and building that support through you know the culture of your well working in a company that has a culture that supports that is something i would value for sure um working with with leaders or peers or you know whatever it's just surrounding yourself with people who are very comfortable with that fact and then designing your your team, your organization, whatever it might be in that resilient way, that's like, yeah, we're going to make some mistakes, but we are prepared for that. We accept that and we know how to recover from that. And now we're all very comfortable just trying things and learning together. And And I think that's, that's the eventual outcome and sort of mental state that I would love to see uh, more people get to.
0: I like it. I did poorly in school. So I, I I got a real good life lesson growing up all the way through school that I definitely don't have the answers. The grades told me I didn't. And so I got I got really comfortable with not having the answers. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. cool. Dude, this was awesome. This is fantastic conversation. I we made a podcast. I super like you. Next time I'm out in San Francisco, I'll let you know. That's great. Um, do you guys have offices out there? Do you have like central offices so you all distribute? Them? Yeah,
1: we do. We have an office in um, San Francisco. We have a few other offices, uh, a couple yeah. in the in the U.S., one in Tokyo, um, and we're we're adding a couple internationally. But we we have one here in San Francisco. Yeah.
0: Dude, maybe you and I go visit. Um, who's out there? At out there. They have some cool events too, like company events.
1: Well, as I said, I have. some. Yeah. I know some people, but it sounds like you do too. So I'm sure we could find our way. Dude, that'd be cool. Over yeah. and say hi. Yeah.
0: Who knows, sometimes I say this stuff and like, just it magically lines up. Like I'll realize that I'm in San Francisco in a week and then I'll just text some people and they'll be like, oh dude, let's do it, so. Perfect, it would be great. Rob, thank you so much. You have a fantastic afternoon and we'll talk soon.
1: All right, thanks a lot. Yeah, it was great chatting with you. See you, bud. Enjoy, yeah, take care.